Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Have you ever noticed that in the scariest movies, only part of what's happening is revealed? The more that's left to your imagination, the scarier it becomes. The same idea is true with what we hide from ourselves. That can make the process of self-discovery seem scarier than it needs to be. When we expend energy hiding from ourselves, we miss out on the richness of the unconscious. And why is that important? Because most of what motivates us is unconscious. And to paraphrase the great psychoanalyst Carl Jung, if we don't come to know this large part of ourselves, it will drive us and we will feel as if we have no say in how things turn out. This episode is near and dear to my heart. Many years ago, I was reading a book by today's guest and thought, I feel like I'm listening to Yoda. I'm hearing the words of one of the wisest people I have ever come across. It would be a huge gift to have a cup of tea with him. And that is exactly what you'll be getting today, a gift from one of psychology's deepest thinkers. And I recommend you pour yourself a nice cup of tea as you listen in. Dr. James Hollis, who has asked me to call him Jim, received his training at the Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland, and he has been a licensed Jungian analyst for almost 40 years. He is in private practice in Washington, D.C., and is the author of 16 truly fantastic books. I like to think of Jim as being an expert detective of the unconscious, and this episode reflects his ease at navigating this mysterious area of our lives. He is also producing a documentary film that explores the current crisis of men. If you are so moved to do so after the episode, in the show notes you can find a link or a teaser of the film, as well as the opportunity to make a tax-deductible donation to this important nonprofit project. And in the meantime, join Jim and me as we dive deep into the treasures of the unconscious. Hello, Dr. James Hollis, who I will be referring to as Jim moving forward. Welcome to Super Sight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Adam. Great. Well, I think the first question I have to ask is you are a Jungian analyst, which mm-hmm. may be a foreign concept to many. And I'm wondering if you could describe in simple terms, what is a Jungian analyst and how did you become attracted to this form of psychology? Well, those are actually very complex questions, but I'll try to make it simple. I found Jung uh, as a psychologist who really addressed the thing that I've always considered the most important aspect of being human, and that's the problem of meaning. We're meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animals, and we suffer the disconnect from meaning. And when people walk into our consulting rooms, as you well know, they may have some sort of presenting symptomatology. But in some way, what it is, is their own psyche revolting in the face of the life that they're living or being having imposed upon them. So um, I, I think Jung treats the individual as more than just the sum of behaviors and cognitive processes and biochemical processes. 
but as, as a creature who suffers meaning. And as he said once, the smallest of things with meaning is always larger than the largest of things without meaning. So um, I know that's very vague on the one that's hand. That's perfect. But underneath that, you see, if a person has, let's say, a depression, which is rather common, um, there may be multiple causes of depression, and some of them are quite legitimate reactions to outer disappointment or loss or something like that. But uh, in the long run, we have to say, well, you know, why is the human psyche, why is my psyche autonomously withdrawn approval and support from the places where my executive function up here wishes to invest these energies? Uh, a good example of that is many times people have faithfully followed the dictates, expectations, scripts of their family of origin, the culture in which they find themselves. But inwardly, it doesn't feel right, or the energy is lagging, or that sense of satisfaction, or there's burnout, or substance abuse, or whatever the case may be. And then you have to ask, all right, why is my psyche not cooperating? And that's the invitation to a dialogue with the inner life. And there's very little in our culture that prepares us for that, or which um, in some way invites that kind of conversation. Ironically, now, because of the virus we've been dealing with, a lot of sequestering, as a friend of mine said, you know, a lot of folks are being introduced to their inner life, possibly for the first time in a very sustained way, and they're not really enjoying the company there. So I, I think in many ways, depth psychology, as I would prefer to call it at this moment, is really an effort to engage the inner world and, of course, to try to converse with the unconscious, which by definition is sort of impossible. You know, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So the question is, we have to then create a sensibility and a tracking system, so to speak, to um, begin to track what the unconscious is saying to us through our symptoms, uh, through those behaviors that we regret, but nonetheless keep happening through us and spilling into the world onto our children or our partners or whatever. And of course, we, we work with dreams too, those autonomous, spontaneous, generative commentaries that occur for all of us every night up to and including six dreams per night, which is an extraordinary amount of activity. So the point is the world is full of clues, but we are trying to sort of identify them and, and track them. And I think what it usually leads to is a couple of things right quickly. It makes the individual's life journey even more interesting. This is not about self-absorption. This is not narcissism. It's actually a humbling experience. I need to sort of say, what do I need to learn from something else that's going on inside of me? And where do I find the sources of healing and resilience and strength and so forth? And, and secondly, I, I need to be able to dialogue with that other part of myself. And when I do that, the center of my gravity shifts between me and the external world, but between me and, and an internal world. Um, you know, we're born with a certain authority. It's called instinct. But because we're tiny and vulnerable and dependent, um, we can't hang on to that. We have to make a thousand, thousand adaptations to the world around us. The greater the adaptations, the larger the split that may very well arise from that intrapsychically. 
So in effect, what we're, we're really talking about is trying to heal some of those splits and have choices come out of a more harmonious relationship with their own inner agenda. When we do that, it doesn't spare us conflict and hardship in life, quite the contrary. But it gives that sense of inner confirmation, purpose, meaning, the support of our energies that otherwise, you know, we're fighting against constantly. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, so many pieces that you've just shared, including that the smallest things of meeting is greater than the big things without meaning. I'm thinking about mere hedonism and how people can kind of almost like bees go from flower to flower, hoping that this will be the meaning that I've been seeking. And lo and behold, it's found in small places sometimes. And you're describing the world as being full of clues, whether it's through dreams and a whole host of other signals and, and clues. Uh, it's as if we need it to live life and to really embrace ourselves in a congruent manner. Manner, we, we need to be psychic detectives. And the depth psychology that you describe so dovetails with the type of psychology I found most useful. It's interesting to note that Irv Yalom, who is out of Stanford, and I'm sure you're familiar with his existential work, has noted that, and this is not to, I'm very grateful to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's, it's a wonderful approach. But in his book, The Gift of Therapy, he notes that cognitive behavioral therapists, when seeking their own therapy, seek therapy from practitioners who provide from the depth traditions. So I just I uh, just couldn't help but note that uh, again, not in any way uh, taking snubbing uh, the, sure. the contributions sure. of CBT, but uh, just really appreciating uh, what what you've just shared with us. Um, you know, I'm so I was reading your book under Saturn's shadow. I noticed that you and I share some things in common. We both started out seeing far more women than men, and at some point it shifted, leading to actually far more men than women coming to see us. And I was wondering to what you attribute that shift in the increase in men seeking psychotherapy? Well, I first started practicing about 45 years ago. And um, as you said, predominantly I saw women. And I think the reason being for women, they've always had a greater permission to be able to examine their emotional life and to take it seriously to be accountable for it, and perhaps to share that with someone else. And on the contrary, men are conditioned as boys. You do not open up inside, mm -hmm. because the moment you open, you, you are vulnerable. The moment you start sharing someone else, somebody else is going to laugh at you, ridicule you, put you down, bully you, because we all went through that. So as boys, we learn early, you stay armored. The open is a threat. I mentioned in that book, I think, man who came in once for the first time at the strong request of his wife. Maybe he had a gun at his head, in fact. Um, and, and he just kind of smirked at the presence of a tissue box there. And, and I knew what he meant by his gesture, but I acted as if I didn't. And he thought I'd missed the point, so he sort of demonstrably smirked again at the tissue box. And I said, what's, what's this about? And he said, well, I won't be needing that. I said, oh, why? How's that? And he says, well, you know, men handle things differently. And I said very briefly, I said, look, every person, every man carries a lake of tears and a mountain of anger inside. And if, if you think a box of tissues, a threat to that, 
then this is this is going to be a difficult process for you. So I, I think that the sort of example of women and the women's movements, which certainly occurred decades before any nascent men's movement, which is still very tiny, began to challenge the limitations of gender roles and expectations, to question the role of our socialization process. When I was a child, my parents firmly believed that I was raised in definitions of what it meant to be a man or what it mm-hmm. meant to be a woman, the violation of which would carry notable sanctions. And, and we realized later that along with many other things thought to be you know, locked into nature or coming from divine fiat uh, are in fact social constructs. And, and as you well know, so many of our social constructs have been undergoing a process of deconstruction mm-hmm. in the last 50, 60 years. And as a result, there's confusion and chaos for many, but there's also a, an opening. There's a tremendous freedom there. So I think today men feel higher level of freedom to address their inner life. And I also think they're in greater trouble because the power of the male tapes, the imagos that we're exposed to, of, um, you know, the world is winners and losers, and you better be a winner, whatever it costs you. And secretly, every man at some level feels that he's a, a loser of some kind. Uh, it's a zero-sum game. It's about competition. It's about power. So you launch yourself on that kind of lifelong project, and that's going to result uh, over time in a violation of other aspects of your own nature. And uh, you can blame others if you wish, but in the long run, you know, we get so hooked into that um, that we wind up in some way doing this to ourselves as well. So men usually have to be in some kind of trouble one way or the other, uh, whether it's marital or, or loss of energy or they wake at three in the morning with a tremendous, you know, abyss staring at whatever it takes. It's that which brings them into therapy. On the other hand, I've, I've had some individuals come in simply because they wanted a deepened conversation around the meaning of their own life journey. And all of the people I'm seeing at this point have been productive citizens and, and right. leading thoughtful lives. It's, it's, it's not as if you know, they're not able to play that game, but there's something else that's looking for recognition, acknowledgement, um, love even. And as a result, uh, that, that has changed the climate. Now, I'm, I'm sure across the country, there's still more women in therapy than, than men, but I've certainly seen the difference. And um, I don't a- advertise as a therapist mm-hmm. or anything like that, but people find their way. So today, I would say 90% of my clients are men. As, as are mine. And oftentimes when I ask, what are you looking for in the introductory phone call? Sometimes they have a very clear cut idea. And my men like yours are often very high functioning, high achieving men. But very often they say, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Which I find to be very profound. And of course, together we look for those clues that you described earlier on and uh, almost put on our Sherlock Holmes hats and become psychic detectives. Um, you know, in spite of the reduction of the stigma with psychotherapy, some men may express concerns that connecting more deeply with their emotions or the tissue boxes you described 
or engaging in therapy itself will feminize them or render them less in touch with their masculinity. And you provide ample discussion about how the opposite is true. Can you speak to the benefits specifically for men that they may experience by allowing themselves to be more reflective and by getting into the therapy process, the discovery that therapy really offers? Well, it helps to remember that the etymology of the word therapy means to pay attention to or to listen, to attend. Uh, Psyche is the Greek word for soul. So however a person would understand that concept of soul, it's who you are most deeply. So psychotherapy is about listening or paying attention to your own soul. Um, then, Then you begin to realize, oh, that could be extremely important, extremely productive. Um, and again, underneath all of this, there is something always seeking its expression and reaching out to us. Just again, very briefly to mention, we don't manufacture our dreams, but the psyche does. Um, and it's presenting us with some kind of commentary on how our life is going. Now, if you thought that you could have the potential advice of some other intelligence, some other observant participant, who saw you from a different perspective and um, had your interests at heart, wouldn't it make sense to, to talk to them once in a while, to listen to them? Yes. And, and you see, that's, that's the kind of um, self-estrangement that we as men have been conditioned with. You know, you don't go in there because your sense of manhood is so shaky that to explore that or to... That's why adolescents will, will be so oppositional to gays, for example, mm-hmm. something like that, because they're so frightened of, of their own fragile hold on what they think is manhood. And wheresoever you see macho behavior, you see a compensation for male fear. Wheresoever you see the oppression of women, you see a compensation for male fear. And, and one of the secrets that I talk about in that book, Under Saturn Shadow, is you know, men's lives are basically governed by fear. They may or may not recognize that or confess it to someone else, but their whole set of behaviors from childhood on is trying to manage the fears as best one can and keep it a secret from the world, including perhaps from my, my, oneself. Uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, Jose Pardo, and I are trying to make a film about this called Soul Heal. If anybody's interested in seeing the trailer of that, it's on my website, uh, jameshollis.net. And, and it, by the way, trying- Jim, just to let you know, it will also be in the show notes for this exact episode. So listeners, please check out the show notes. This is going to be a great project, but please well, thank, carry on. Thank, thank you. What we're trying to do is just explore some of these male tapes and, and frankly, learn from the women's work that has gone on around us that men have their work to do too. If we enter the world separated from ourselves, what kind of father can I be? Mm. What kind of partner can I be? What kind of employee or employer can I be? What kind of therapist can I be? If I'm living in some way a fugitive life and a life of self-deception, I mean, that's inherently unhealthful. And, and the psyche, as far as I can discern, has two motives. Certainly not our comfort, that's for sure. But one is growth and development. We're always asked to keep growing because otherwise something inside of us sickens and dies. And secondly, uh, it's seeking our healing. That's why if I 
dialogue with that, pay attention to that. I, I'm, I'm going to be participating in the life process at a deeper level. And therefore, you can see it's less about pathology and about cure, because we're not diseases to be cured. Um, it's, it's about attending a process in which our own nature unfolds in a new way, in a larger way, and is less constrained by the thousand defenses that we had to acquire necessarily along the way. Those thousand defenses that you describe. I imagine become calcified over time and become unconscious and we begin to compensate just as you were saying these unconscious forces that lead us to compensate in some way. uh, I just love the way you described it as a fugitive life from ourselves and just how destructive that would be. And while it's great to watch ESPN and catch up on the sports, mm-hmm. doing that exclusively may become an analgesic and may really further estrange ourselves if we do that exclusively. We can do ESPN and do therapy and, and take time to it. I love just the way you're describing this. And to that point, from where you sit, and what do you see as the biggest issues facing men that interfere with their psychological wellness and what might be the root causes of these issues? Well, paradoxically, as you just suggested, the biggest threat is the calcification, to use your word, of our defenses. Mm. The single most important thing I learned in six years of training in Zurich and going through my own personal analysis was this terrible paradox, what you've become is now your chief obstacle. You know, you work hard to become something, but so much of it is compensatory. So much of it is in service to these messages coming from the outer world, but also our own complexes and and clusters of of intrapsychic energy. And, you know, it's how much of, uh, of any given day are we really conscious? We may be making a thousand executive decisions out there, important decisions with consequences. But where's it coming from inside of us? Is it coming from a good place or, or, or a bad place? And if you don't ask that kind of question, I mean, that's one of the questions I often ask people in terms of making a decision. Okay, you have to make decisions. But where's it coming from inside of you? What is that in service to inside of you? And initially, you know, we're going to have our rationalization. Well, I have to do this because of this, or I have to do that because of that. But in the long run, many times those things are simply defenses of those old issues or complexes. Now, when I use the word complex here, it's simply another word for a cluster of historic energy that we have. And we all have them because we have history. We are historic creatures. So you learn very early, you know, some things are safe, some are unsafe. Um, some, some things you can trust, some things you can't trust, and so forth. Well, we begin to build a kind of provisional personality structure around it. And especially because it, it helps us adapt to the world. Uh, I've been told that, that the, um, one of the most familiar proverbs in Japan has been, historically, it's the, the protruding nail that gets hammered. 
So it's, in other words, don't show up as yourself because that's going to be dangerous or somebody's not going to like that or they're not going to prove that. Um, and, and so we learn in some way to constantly be working on the persona, you know, the mask we, we bring to the world. And um, men can even get to believe their own persona. And that's why so many men are interested in status symbols, of wealth and power and so forth, because that's a kind of confirmation. And one of the, one of the principles I've often articulated to give a depth perspective on things is, you know, it's, it's not what it's about. So if you see a person posturing behind status symbols, of wealth and power and so forth, you can be sure it's a compensation for inner inadequacy, inner fear that's unaddressed. Therefore, he is constantly trying to bolster his, his outer image, constantly trying to seek approval from others or have reassertions of uh, his, his legitimacy and so forth. Now, underneath that, you know, that's the dirty little secret. That this is all a defense against something. What happens if we're not defended? Then we have an opportunity to perhaps address the root causes. In other words, how can I, in fact, feel good about myself when I don't feel good about myself? I mean, that's most men, I suppose you have found this as well, um, really don't think highly of themselves, <laughs> despite what they try to tell the world. Sure. And, and often feel uh, significant failures in key areas of their life. They might be successful in business, but terrible with their children or with their yes. partners or something like that. And, and they all feel, you know, someday the committee's going to turn up at the front door and knock on the door and say, well, you know, we just want to tell, let you know, we've found you out. You're, mm -hmm. you're a fraud. You're a fraud and an imposter. And we're going to tell the whole world. And so there's a deep sense of shame there. You know, as you know, guilt is something you did do or didn't do. But shame is who you are is fundamentally flawed, contaminated. And ironically, most men feel deep core sense of shame. And much of the life is built trying to hide that. And so, you know, there's a reclamation process there. And part of the process is based on allowing or, or, you know, introducing a person to separate from those male tapes and those expectations and reapproach himself as a human being and begin to say, you know, what is it that your soul desires for your life? What are your deepest needs? What are your deepest fears? What are your deepest uh, wishes in terms of, of life satisfaction? Where do you really want to invest your energy? We all have to earn a living. We all have to render you know, legitimate services to our relational commitments. That's, of course, the case. But something inside is always aching for expression. And... and most men never get to the point, sadly, that, that they can acknowledge that and take the steps necessary to honor that. Sounds simple in the abstract, but inside are so many resistances, 
It's a scary path. I fear it, I wind up losing things I already have. Uh, I, I, there are going to be relational costs. Um, I can't. I can't trust it. You know, I don't know that there's something there on the other side of that for me. So, you know, that's that's resistance. And as Freud pointed out, the greater the resistance inside, the greater the anxiety. So you have to respect that, but not collude with that anxiety. Because something else is seeking its expression. I just want to repeat something you said before I ask my next my next question. What what you've become is your chief obstacle. And you mentioned Japan. I used to live there and they have two concepts, hone and tatemai. Hone means what you feel inside and tatemai is what you show on the outside. We are so wired and nurtured to conform. And in Japan, it's a, a social lubricant, but we can take a page out of their playbook as you're speaking now uh, and how it relates to shame and how it relates to the fear and how we become all the more estranged from who we are, all the more fearful of being imposters. And uh, you're just constantly tapping into the importance of shining a light, whether it's through COVID or through psychotherapy, uh, through other reflective processes and how, how frightening that is. And um, I'm just thinking about the idea that we can own or be owned by our feelings. You describe the importance of what the general public refers to as negative emotions like sadness, anger, and worry as being important signals that require our attention. I often think of these as lights showing up on our dashboard of living. Uh, you go even further with a great quote from the gospel according to Thomas. You, he's, according to that, it's if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Can you speak about how a person can attend to those negative emotions in a practical way? Well, first of all, people will feel bad about feeling bad. I suppose that's understandable. <laughs> but we want to depathologize pathology. If I could be didactic for a moment to Please. say the word psychopathology, pathos is suffering, logos is expression, um, psyche is soul. So psychopathology literally means the expression of the suffering of the soul. Now, that doesn't turn up in the DSM that you and I were raised no. with, you know, in terms of listing of symptoms and so forth. <sighs> and it certainly doesn't fit in you know, the treatment modalities of most of psychology, but it's the expression of the suffering of the soul. So the defenses we have are there for good reason. It's because there was injury or threat. Again, the defenses, though, have, as you said before, certain calcification. It's a great word. Um, a kind of um, internal institutionalization. They become reflexes, if you will. And, and therefore can stand in the way of a deeper encounter with the soul. And as I mentioned before, the human soul, whatever that means, and it's, it's, it's a word I use simply to talk about the mystery of being a human being, is not particularly interested in our ego comfort, okay? Um, it's interested, as I said, in its own growth and its own expression. And so if I ask that question, 
Because again, the first half of life, you're, you're dominated pretty much by the question, what does the world want from me? You know, what do my parents want? What's the school teacher want? What's the employer want? What's the partner want? What's the corporation want? Um, and, and that's, again, partly the real world that we live in. But on the other hand, it means I'm being defined by my reaction to external sources. If I ask the question in the second half of life, so why am I here still if I've perhaps reproduced species and served my social functions and that kind of thing? As far as nature is concerned, I can go. But here I am. So then the question of meaning comes up. Then you have to ask a question, but what is then wanting expression through me? Which is why sometimes people undergoing transitions or passages in their life, if they faithfully work that through, they'll come out in quite a different place. In my early life, I was an academic. I enjoyed it, and I, I still am teaching at this age. But, but I realized at some point, I, I wanted to do more than have conversations with 18-year-olds. There's nothing wrong with being 18. It's just there's another kind of conversation that occur when you're 48, 58, or 68. So for my own interests, I wanted a different kind of conversation. But secondly, I also wanted to be asking questions not so much of information, which was the primary venue of those first half of life conversations, but, but questions that involve engaging the mystery of what does it mean to live my life? And by what lights from within or sources am I to make my choices? And what am I called to do? So it led me to leave a tenured position in academia that people really valued. I mean, mm -hmm. I valued. That was the goal, so to speak, in that area in particular, um, for, for being a self-employed person with all the risk that that entailed. And, and yet it allowed a, a measure of freedom, mobility, and again, a better, more interesting conversation as far as I was concerned. And, and therefore I, I found myself in bringing together my long-term interest in education with those kinds of second half of life questions. What am I here for really? Who am I apart from my roles? Some are good roles, maybe some are not. Um, who, am I for my, uh, who am I apart from my resume? Which is how men often think of themselves. Um, and, and again, what is wanting expression through me here? And that's not about ego comfort, because what it might ask is some great significant sacrifice on your part. You might have to risk a relationship. You might have to risk retraining. You might have to risk the comfort zone that you once held on to. But your life gets to be more interesting. And one of the paradoxes, which I'm sure you know, is when you're doing the right thing, there's, a, there's an energy in us that, oh. that rises to the surface to support that. We can mobilize our energy in all kinds of directions, and we have to. Sometimes you get out of bed in the morning because life demands. But when we're doing the right thing, there's energy there. Something in us supports us. Jung said once a sentence I think about almost every day. He said, we all need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. In other words, you can lose the structures of your life, like your marriage or your understanding of yourself or your, your job, and you suddenly realize 
my identity was my job. Now I don't exist, so to speak. The question is, what then rises to support you from within? If a person has gone through that and has found that, he or she is then never alone. Uh, he or she then has uh, an internal compass, if you will. You know, in 1862, Emily Dickinson wrote once an interesting aphorism. She said, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. And I thought it was a marvelous metaphor. And I think part of what she was referencing, given the context of her interest at the time, was the progressive dis diminishment of the power of some of the great social institutions around to give people their marching orders and their linkage to you know, transcendent values. And she was saying, basically, if you have a compass, then you can figure out true north. If you don't have a compass, you're adrift. And a good many men and women are adrift uh, most of the time. Uh, and are reassuring themselves by reference to the usual points of reference, family, career, you know, status, all those sorts of things. But if, if one realizes, all right, I'm not those things, they may be of great value to me. And if they're not of great value, then, of course, maybe you need to change it. But they're of great value. But then there's still this essential mystery of why am I here, really? Just to suck oxygen and, and be a productive animal until one day I'm not here? Um, I mean, that's, that's the big question of our life. And uh, it's being asked in the unconscious. That I can guarantee you because I've seen it. Because when it's not addressed, that's when psychopathology occurs. That's when the person is trying to repress that starts drinking too much or lives a life of distraction. Um, and and Heavens knows, our culture is one huge distraction machine, 24-7. You can go, go through a day without ever reflecting on what this is about. What's my journey about? There's so many distractions. And um, a person only hits that wall when those distractions are removed. Or sometimes, you know, they wake at three or four in the morning, the so-called hour of the wolf. And they face this profound sense of emptiness. And, and those are moments of the soul. Because at that point, one has to then say, what is this about? Who am I really? What is my journey about really? And I think those are the kinds of questions that give us a sense of purpose and um, dignity and a, a, a tremendous um, impulse for courage, because um, without courage, as I said before, it becomes a fugitive life, kind of dodge and fend, hoping that one is not discovered, not ferreted out. And if you could say, you know, th this is what I found to be true for me after a serious process of discernment, sorting through the enormous traffic that we all have inside of us at all times. This is what is true for me, and this is what I'm going to invest in. This is what I find life-sustaining. And ironically, usually, that is also persuasive to other people. It's like the old Asian saying, 
person who speaks the right word will be heard a thousand miles away. Well, if you're, you're in some way in sync with what is seeking as expression through you, then somehow that touches other people too. It changes the energy field somehow around us. You know, one thing that Jung said that always haunted me, and I think in a constructive way, was um, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. And I, I think there's tremendous significance to that. Um, my children, who are now full adults, of course, um, you know, first of all, I have to watch for the outer exa example. If they see me continuing to grow and develop and e evolve, that's a life model for them. It opens their imagination. It, it gives a certain permission. Most people don't have a sense of permission to really have their own lives, to feel what they feel, desire what they desire, and strike out and find what they want to find. Simplistic as that sounds, we learned early as children, life is conditional. And you better meet the conditions. And if you don't, you're going to be isolated, um, marginalized, maybe even punished in some way. So that's, that's where some part of it starts caving in and adapting. And that's when we forget the big questions. One last point about that. Jung himself writes in his memoir. He said, life has addressed a question to, to me. And I myself am a question. And I think that gets it in a way. What is the question life has presented to me? And who am I uh, in the unfolding of that dialogue? That's, that's the question that life brings to me. You know, I'm, I'm touched by so many of the points you've just shared, and I'm recalling in 2006, in July, during the hour of the wolf, I'm going to say it was 3.30 a.m., I awoke to chest pain, felt like an elephant was sitting on me. I had a one-year-old son, and I was deeply in touch with the fact that I was working for a corporation and not a psychologist, and that my life's work was not being attended to. I was not willing to accept who I was. There was an inconvenience to that truth. And I was thinking about my newborn son and not knowing that the greatest burden he could face in many ways was the unlived life of me. Of course, I went to the hospital. I found out it was a panic attack. And as we know, panic is generally the byproduct of avoidance. And as soon as I entered the fiscally, uh, seemingly imprudent path of becoming a psychologist, mm -hmm. I was as light as a feather and I have been ever since. And uh, so everything you're saying lands with me personally and I can't help but think about the concept of the shadow, the unlived life mm -hmm. and how it was so beautifully popularized by George Lucas's depiction of Darth Vader in Star Wars, this shadow figure, this unlived life, and the burden put on Luke, his son, mm -hmm. because this man had, was not living his truth, was not willing to tap in. And I'm wondering if we could just go with the shadow for a little bit. The shadow is just such a it's one of uh, the great legacies of Jung, uh, one of the great many wonderful legacies. But I'm wondering, 
Okay. How would you define the shadow in practical terms and how can we benefit from knowing our shadow? Sure. Well, Jung's concept of the shadow are the parts of ourselves we prefer to keep out of the light. Why would we do that? Well, it makes the ego uncomfortable. It, it maybe contradicts my conscious values or is that which I don't wish to see or don't wish to admit within me. But look, we're, we're all sharing human DNA. The wisest thing ever said about the shadow was uttered by the Latin playwright Terence over two millennia ago when he said, nothing human is alien. So I carry the whole human project. It's, it's in me. Now, I want to exclude aspects. of. I don't want to think of myself as vain. I don't want to think of myself as jealous. I don't want to think of myself as violent. I want to think of myself as envious of others. I don't want to think of myself as so on. Big list. But these things are part of our human nature. And, and if I'm not looking at them, they keep spilling into the world. So the shadow is personal in the sense of things that I don't face in myself. It doesn't mean they're not active in the world. Again, they can be carried by my children, my partner, spilling into the world unconsciously through me. Uh, there, there's also the collective shadow, aspects of our collective structures, religious organizations, universities, governments, um, countries. All countries have their shadow. I mean, the history we were taught in America was U.S. war, the white hat in history's melodrama. You know, the good guys who always stepped in and made things happen, right? We're number one, right? Yep. Well, you know, this is a culture based on the annihilation of indigenous populations, the um, destruction of, of natural resources, the importation of slavery, the consequences of which we're still suffering. I mean, it's hardly a, a pleasing legacy. I remember after 9-11, a lot of people said, why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? Well, you know, you could actually ask somebody, why is it you don't like me? Or what is it you see about me? So if you've lived abroad, as I have and you have, you get a quite a different perspective on America because you begin to see more of the shadow aspect. Mm -hmm. And the shadow is that which, by definition, I prefer not to deal with. Now, if I'm not dealing with it, I'm essentially saying somebody else is going to have to deal with it. Because the paradox is, the single best thing I can do for the world is to own that within myself. Because if I can make it conscious, then it's less likely to be acting out there unconsciously. Um, another one of the things that Jung said is so profound, and I think about it so commonly, and he said, what is not faced inwardly will tend to be happening in the world out there and we'll call it fate. You know, we'll think it's like it's happening out there just because it's happening out there, little knowing that I've in some way set that up. Yeah. And that happens in the field of relationships. I mean, a good example in relationship is, is power. Power is neutral. Power is the energy to address life's tasks. But in relationships powers easily can be in service to complexes of various kinds and we, we know the outcome of it and it's true in parent-child relations it's true in intimate relationships it's true in corporate relationships so th then it's not the powers to be avoided is how is it to be utilized and in service to what that's why i often ask that question it's not so much what you choose it's what it's in service to inside of you that makes a big difference
And I've said, for example, in an area of quite a different uh, inquiry, say, say people's religious values. I said, you know, in the end, it may not matter so much what you believe, but what does matter is why you believe it and what it's in service to in believing it. And is it simply received authority? Is it a fear-based response? Is it calling on, on the, the most defended parts of you? Um, or is it coming out of some authentic experience? Does this deepen your journey, make you in some way a richer person on this journey? Then it's coming from a quite a different place. So the, the, the shadow is the big moral question of individual life and of corporate life. And by that, I mean, again, organizations and countries and, and so forth. That what we do matters, has consequences, and therefore we have to own those consequences. I think being a mature person or an adult psychologically, as opposed to just walking around in a big body in a big role, is to be very mindful of consequences and to be accountable for them. As simple as it sounds, accountability is, is, is part of the summons to the moral life. Not being moralistic, I'm simply saying, if I'm accountable, then I'm in some way attentive to cause and effect, choice and consequence. And we never get it all right. It's too complex to get it all right. We're not creatures of perfection. But the more I at least try to pay attention to that, um, the, the more it starts cleaning up some of the relationships around us, which is why it's been said that our personal shadow work is the best thing we can do for our society. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm thinking about my own shadow material, my own unconscious material and how it's shown up and how it's been reflected to me in so many ways through my dreams, through my interactions, and through the feedback I've gotten from others, sometimes uninvited and sometimes incredibly precious. And sometimes just by merely moving my pen and seeing a surprise show up in my journal, and certainly as a byproduct of really a great psychotherapeutic relationship and having the safety to midwife the unspeakable thoughts. I love that you brought up that idea from 2000 years ago. Uh, once again, Irvin Yalom brings that idea up that he can relate to the entirety of the human experience. And that's a, that's a really tough thing to say because many of us would prefer to see ourselves as above or different from. And the courage it takes to face one's shadow is terrifying. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. yeah, that's why this work is not self-indulgent. Quite the contrary, it's very humbling. The more I learn about it, the more I have to deal with, the more I have to face. So you can see why there would be a natural resistance. It's much easier to turn on the telly and have some chocolate and hope for tomorrow. Um, but if I'm going to do this work, it's going to ask more of me than it's comfortable. But it's in that that one grows. That's the point. You know, the soul enlarges by that encounter with the, with the difficulty. There's a beautiful letter from Rilke to the young poet in which he says to the young man, he says, I counsel you to always hold to what is difficult for you because that will show you, that will be the path for you that will be most authentic and lead you to your own larger self. Well, our whole system is a protection against the difficult. Exactly. 
you know, and that's why there's that internal conflict that often shows up as psychopathology, when in fact we're really called to another kind of accountability and, and a summons. And as I've said to many people, you know, this is not a cure. This is about having a more interesting conversation around the meaning of your journey. And who would not be interested in that, I would think. Could not agree more. You know, the most unlikely of voices, Howard Stern, uh, was describing his own process and analysis and saying it's the hardest thing he's ever done and the most rewarding thing he's done in his entire life. And if you look at the arc of this shock jock on the radio, he used to just basically ask women to take off their tops and talk about things like that. And he's evolved into a very deep thinker over his life. And it's just been such a delight to see this man uh, become more of who he is through the process of knowing his shadow and really grappling with the tough stuff. I often think of psychotherapy as walking some really difficult terrain and therapists as being great Sherpas, um, helping navigate and just pointing in a particular direction. Do you want to go here? Let's take a look there. Hopefully having walked the train ourselves through our own work, because I do believe that a therapist must do their work before they help others, uh, as, I, as I imagine you do as well. Um, well, as Jung put it, he said, you can't take a person farther than you've traveled yourself. So you have to keep doing your own work. I'm so sad that Jung's voice didn't win out a little bit more when I think about some, just the little I know about Jung and his description of psyche therapy instead of psychotherapy, which Freud had suggested. And as you break down the word therapy and for the psyche, the kind of the discovery of the psyche, I love, I love that idea. Um, and there are so many concepts that Jung addresses, the collective unconscious. For those of you not familiar with it, take a look into it. It's just, it's really good stuff. Uh, you can always consider watching certain, certain documentaries on Jung. He's just, he's just wonderful. You write a lot about living authentically, and we've been talking about this and with passion. And one of my favorite lines that you mentioned was in the middle passage. It was just a brief line. You said, where there is play, there is life force. That delighted me beyond belief. And I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of claiming your childlike energy in adulthood and how it allows us to live more authentically and passionately. Well, sure. Um, two things at once. Remember, too, the etymology of passion is passio, which is the Latin word for suffering. Yeah. Sympathy, empathy, uh, yes. compassion means to feel the suffering of another person. So passion is something you feel so deeply that at some level it hurts, but it's at your core. So you can't not lay claim to it. Um, play, of course, is where in a sense, the human spirit has its greatest freedom. Um, not necessarily play as killing time, we say, or frivolity, but play in a sense of creative process. I mean, that's, that's how that word recreation, which means to recreate something, you know? And, and play is the essential spontaneity of the spirit. You see it in children. Then you have to ask yourself, well, whatever happened to that? You know, um, I, I was on a plane rather recently, and there was a, a 
was rather newborn, somebody had on the plane and he, he, his head was just bouncing along and he was looking around smiling at everybody. And he had everybody smiling back at him. And, and it was like the whole try, the plane trip. He wasn't one of those babies that cried the whole trip. Uh-huh. He was just sort of grinning at everybody. And I remember thinking, you know, that's primal wonder. He's just delighted to be here. He thinks you're terrific, the person watching him. And by the way, I'm obviously terrific. And, you know, it was just like a little momentary revisiting, kind of like Wordsworth's uh, Ode on Intimations of Immortality as recollected through the scenes of childhood, which he published in 1902, in which he said, you know, we're born with that primal sense of wonder, which is the core human emotion. And the primary function that we utilize is not reason, as important as that may be, but imagination. And he said, it, it, it's there and then slowly gets abraded day by day until by the time adolescence arrives, this is Wordsworth speaking, it fades into the light of common clay, he said. And he said, once in a while, when you see the child, you will remember, recognize, revisit, revision. Um, that original sense of wonder and spontaneity that I saw in that child's face that day. And we all have that inside of us. It's buried under a lot of adaptations, a lot of threats, a lot of fears, uh, a lot of repressions, prohibitions, but it's, it's always there at some level. So, you know, humor and creativity are two of the modalities whereby we transcend, I think, the limits of, of this condition. You know, I mean, life is birth and uh, a short in-between and then death. You know, so much for that. But what fills it along the way? How luminous was that interim? What was it in service to? And, and what was the best way for you to live that. Those are questions that were once answered at the tribal level. This is our tribe's story. We all fit into that. And it, as a result of which, it links us to the mysteries of the cosmos, mysteries of nature, mysteries of belonging, and the mystery of your own individual identity and journey. But as those images and rituals have faded in their authority over the last centuries, that psycho-spiritual responsibility has shifted from the tribe and sacred institutions increasingly to the shoulders of individuals, which is both liberating and terrifying for me. But in accepting it, one has taken on, I think, the powerful summons, opportunity as a human being to in some way, engage in this meaning process with which we started today. Um, you know, again, we're the meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animals, and we suffer the disconnect from meaning. And our whole life is about that. And the question is, what happens when we get disconnected from, well, again, our psyche responds, creates that psychopathology we were talking about, and rather than medicate it away or anesthetize it or try to finesse it, or simply deal with topical solutions to topical problems, we have to ask this other question, which otherwise wouldn't have occurred to us. 
What does the soul want? What is it asking of me? And the more I can begin to operate on that kind of vector with the inner world, um, the deeper my life goes and, and the richer it becomes and the more interesting it becomes. And I think it's at that point where we are most engaged in the mystery of the whole cosmos, but the mystery we are as well. And somehow we're the, we're the, we're a small particle of how that cosmos unfolds. And um, I find that interesting and worth devoting my life to. I feel very validated at the moment because I'm deeply committed to being a responsible grown-up, but not at the exclusion of being a child. I really want to hold on to that precious space. And there's so much unvarnished truth from the mouths of babes. And I remember studying the romantic poets that you described, Wordsworth, and how they had a profound love, maybe even uh, an idealization of the voices of children. And uh, yeah, that just that unvarnished truth is, is so precious. And I love that image of you being on the airplane with a smiling baby who was probably anomalous to most travelers, uh, who gave everybody so much unbridled joy. I have just loved your books. Um, they tend to be short, uh, 120 to 150 pages. And every page uh, uh, that I read <laughs> of yours, and you probably have no idea, but I, I, I find myself underlining so much uh, because every page is so rich and yet easily read uh, in spite of the fact that, so, that it's so deeply concentrated with importance and meaning. And I find myself thinking about you and your legacy. Uh, I imagine that you've lived a very reflective life You've got books, hopefully on the horizon. You have that film with Jose Pardo. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, not only will there be a link in the notes, but there'll be an opportunity to donate to the creation of this film because I think it's very important that uh, more people have access to your work, not just those who are inclined to read your books. Oh, and by the way, Jim, you don't know this, of course, but uh, I, I, I give out books very frequently to the people I see. And in my top two books would have to be The Middle Passage. And every person who has read that book, without exception, has said it was one of the finest things they'd ever read. So I just, I know you don't get to see that or hear that, um, but I, I thought you should know. Thank you. That's very kind uh, of you. And I was saying it less out of kindness and more as, as an attempt to provide you with ac accurate mirroring for what's, what's transpiring behind your back. But I'm wondering about what are your hopes? You've, you've planted so many seeds in the forms of books and, and uh, teaching analysts and providing uh, therapy to the people you see. And, I, and, and, and hopefully this, this film. I'm wondering what, what, what do you hope will be your legacy? Well, the truth is, I never think about that. Um, I'm not presuming anything about legacy. Um, the fact that books will be in print for a while means possibly, because I've always thought of books as, I'm still a teacher at heart, books 
open the classroom to many people. It's, it's an extended classroom, as is, in fact, today on our Zoom broadcast. This is um, usual, utilization of a tool that expands the classroom. So what I identify with is the vocation of teaching. My heroes in childhood were teachers. They opened worlds for me that I couldn't have seen on my own. So I don't think about legacy. I, I think about this is my vocation. And remember, vocation comes from vocatus, the Latin vocal, to be called, something that's calling. So it, it, we all have a calling, and that's not the same as job. But my calling was teaching. And so I simply think if I can do that in this life, then I showed up in the way I was supposed to. And um, I don't expect legacy. I won't be around to uh, appreciate it if it is. If people, you know, a few years from now still read these books, I would think that's nice. Uh, but it's not for me. I, I hope it's useful for them. That's why they're reading it. So this is just you being a vessel uh, who has been called and yes, responded exactly. to the call and written the books. And exactly. exactly. And you're sharing, uh, thinking about Erickson's various stages, and there's so much generativity in that, uh, in that process. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful. I've been certainly a beneficiary of, of, of your vocatus. And uh, thank you. Well, a final question for you, Shem. Okay. If you had magical powers and could confer upon all humans, and perhaps with an emphasis on men, since they are who you mostly see, but a skill or a power that would be helpful to them as individuals and to society at large, what would that skill or power be? You know, I think it would be something very simple and something very basic. And that is who you are, as you are, is fine. It's, it's what you're meant to be. You don't let anyone else define you. You don't let social structures define you. Social economics define you. Other externals define you. Who you are is who you're supposed to be. And learn to trust something inside of you that knows what's right for you. The more you pay attention to that, the better your journey will be. Again won't be free of conflict, even suffering. But it will be right for you because, you know, I've often thought about it. If we could go back and talk to ourselves as children, let's say you have a few minutes with yourself as an eight-year-old or 10-year-old at the most, what would you want to say to that child? And as I think about it, I, first thing I would say is essentially what I said, you know, it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Rough roads ahead, bumpy times. Um, you you get knocked down, but you can get up, and it's okay to be afraid. Everybody is. They don't tell you, but everybody is. Um, you're going to be fine, and trust that you'll find your way. And when you do, you you will find this life is very rich after all. And I must say, with all respect. 
to good people around me, those were not the messages I was Mm-mm. hearing or seeing in my culture. Mm-mm. They they are asking a child in some way to trust his or her own nature, as opposed to finding a way to fit in, because that's where the great inner divide begins, and that's how we lose ourselves. And the whole second half of life project, generically speaking, is sort of the recovery of that journey, hopefully. And um, trying to get back some sense of um, who we are and, and what really matters to us from the definitions that arise from inside. Uh, if I've ever heard a blessing, uh, I can't think of any better words than to inspire children to tap into their truths. It seems like such a preventive measure for so many things that we could experience later in life and that it's almost as if with compounded interest every year that we grow, we grow more fully into who we were intended to become. Um, Jim, I must apologize if I may ask one final, final question because I realized there was one that I would be remiss if I didn't ask. I really appreciate it. Dreams. You and I both share a love for Mm -hmm. mining the data that exists in dreams. And I'm wondering on a practical level, uh, what is important about dreams and how can any person really glean the data or the, the messages, the, uh, as you said earlier, the clues from our dreams, because they can seem so mysterious. Well, of course they do. <clears throat> and that's a huge subject, by the way. Huge. Let me, let me be brief. Um, I think we have to start with recognizing nature doesn't waste energy. I just hit 80 recently. And if you live to 80, six full years of your life will be spent dreaming. That's been demonstrated by laboratory research. It's not speculation. And we average about six dreams per night. And everybody's going to say, well, I don't remember that many dreams. No, we don't. But dreams occur. Whether you know it or not, they're occurring. And it's true that if over time you really pay attention, which again, it's the root meaning of therapoian or therapy, really pay attention, attend, begin to realize there's a symbolic language because it is your dream. No one planted it in your brain. No enemy, alien presence entered there. It's your dream. Something in you is seeking through symbolic language to communicate. Jung was once asked, are dreams deceptive? He said, nature's not deceptive. He said, we just have lost the language through which nature speaks. So we have to be able to learn over time our symbolic process and to begin to realize that so many of these images that we so easily dismiss and say, oh, I know what that's about. I, I saw something on television last night or this happened at work yesterday. Well, that's the ego's sort of nervous agenda but let let me just put that on a shelf if we will we don't have to take it seriously but to say all right your psyche is working overtime as a matter of fact to produce some commentary and it's um speaking what is often a corrective or compensatory language for you because our conscious life and our response to the world's demand often pushes us to one side in our life and so the psyche has to begin to try to find some balancing act 
here to to sort of bring us back to you know a, a, our own nature yes so the attendance of this over time you begin to realize well you know there are certain familiar motifs why did my why did my psyche bring up my third grade teacher last night whom i haven't seen in decades I haven't thought about it or some kid I knew at some point, or some character from a movie. And then you begin to appreciate the extraordinary ingenuity and creative process that goes on inside of all of us. That's again, the imagination is our highest function. And you realize, all right, you know, when I began to ask, but what are my associations with that character or with that figure or what happened around that teacher back there that resonates for me? It's not about the past. It's about something in the present that's still occurring. You know, as Faulkner said, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. So we don't spend our time dealing with the past. We're talking about how the past is still dealing with us and how it keeps showing up and infiltrating into our decision process. So in, in effect, over time, and this has to be a short answer to a long question. Over time, we began to realize a greater familiarity with the symbolic functions that are going on within ourselves and recognize that those images are not random and they're not just stimulated by the outer world, although they can be triggered by that. Um, they are actually talking about, about how we are experiencing something or where we're missing something. I'll just give you a quick example. When my son left for college i gave him the usual parental talk about i said the two great risks for a freshman is there's nobody hanging over your shoulder sort of telling you be at this class on time and you sure you got that paper done and that sort of thing but so it's gonna to have to be on you you know that, that was parent talk number one parent talk number two uh, it's it's like a smorgasbord there's going to be so much to do from classes to extracurricular activities and you, you do too much and get overwhelmed and so forth. And he says, yes, 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 dad, yes. He took off, wound up registering for six classes, five. Mm. Plus, at the last minute, he decided to take Russian. And I just said, it's, it's too much, right? So I, I said that to him on the phone when he was talking to me about his enrollment and so forth. And, uh, and, and sure enough, six weeks later, he dropped Russian. He realized it was too much. You know, but he had to find that out himself. But what was interesting to me, the next morning I had a dream. This is kind of an embarrassing dream because here's my psychic critiquing me. Here I am driving my children to university, but they're both in these little seats in the back and they're strapped in like children. And that's the dream. And I thought, my first thought was, what a silly dream. But then there's always a point to the dreams. And I thought, look, your psyche is saying, look, they're adults. They have to find out for themselves. Yeah, if they want your advice, they'll ask for it. But you're still thinking of them as children whom you have to sort of tell what to do. And so the psyche created that kind of absurd image of adult students in, you know, these protective seats. And I'm driving them to the universe because I'm still wanting to be the driver in their lives. That's, you know, parents do that. And um, my own psyche reminded me, sometimes you better just keep your mouth shut and they'll figure it out along the way. Now I could sit here and tell you dozens upon dozens of people's dreams that are revelatory, 
life-changing, absolutely targeted something for them to face and to look at and gave them some resources from time to time. Um, but each of us has this going on within us. And I would invite any of your listeners to um, pay attention to them, write the dreams down, think about your associations, live with those images for a couple of days and see what starts to come to the surface. Because often a dream that seems so esoteric or opaque, when you work with the images over time, um, it begins to loosen and the material comes to the surface, which is, by the way, the etymology of the word analysis, as in psychoanalysis, it's to stir up from below to see what comes to the surface from the ancient Greek. And um, it's not forensic slicing up, it's stirring up from below like a riverbed to see what, what's, what's down there. Yeah. And what, what can we discover? And what can we discover that will be um, useful to us? Nature does not waste energy. That may be the best summation of why dreams require our attention and that we dream for six years during our lifetime. Uh, Jim, uh, just to that point, uh, and I know we will, we will close, but uh, it was many years ago that I first came across your work. It felt as though I was having a cup of tea with you. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a cup of tea with Jim someday? And today I'm having a cup of tea with you. And now all of my listeners are getting to have a cup of tea with you as well. I'm so grateful for you taking time and so grateful that you've been called. Thank you, Adam. It's been a privilege to spend this time with you. And I appreciate your, your comments and your questions very much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 